We'll be looking at uh, Revelation chapter 5 in just a few minutes. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen in, in just a couple minutes. Uh, our staff at Green Tree takes a retreat every year. We go away for two or three days and uh, spend some time planning and thinking about the year to come. Typically, we do it early in the fall as our calendar year kind of mirrors the school year. Uh, and last fall, we went up to a little place in Wisconsin, and we had a three-day retreat. Uh, and Ellen Stream, who's one of our children's directors, is smart enough to know that our staff can't be in cars for a long time without, like, games to play. So only you have small children when you go on a vacation. Just kind of think about that, and that's kind of where our staff is. You know, she knows that those of us who aren't driving will bug the driver, and so she, you know, trying to distract us. Uh, but one of, the, one of the questions in one of the games was, what's kind of the, the, the craziest thing you ever did as a kid? Uh, And in the context of that question, one of our staff members told a story, and when she got done telling, I said, did did that really happen that way? And she said, absolutely, that's that's the truth. So I asked her to write it down. I want you to listen to this story uh, in the context of thinking about something that grabs your attention. Uh, You give it an incredible uh, amount of worth. You assign it worth in your life, okay? So this is, she said she didn't care if I used her name. So this is Diana Simone Pietri. This is uh, uh, Jeremy's ministry assistant. And here's her story from when she was 15 years old. In 1964, when the Beatles descended upon the United States, I was 15 and fell hook, line, and sinker for the Fab Four and became one of those screaming teenage girls. I actually got to see them at concert twice, once in Dallas and once in Houston. First, I want a trip to Dallas to attend their concert after entering the contest at our local radio station. After sending probably 30 postcards with my name on it, for those of you that are like 20 and below, those are like these little cards you put a stamp on them. <laughs> what she's saying is, is, is she texted or, or she tweeted the radio station to get signed up in a, in a contest. I saw a kid at the church I'm going to. I'm, we stopped the tapes for a second. This kid in the old church office where I used to work a few years ago, uh, they had a mimeograph machine. They'd made this copy, and this kid looks at it and goes, wow, what will they think of next? Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so she, she sends her, her postcards and listening to the radio from 6 a.m. to midnight every day during the contest week to see if my name would be drawn. And it was announced on the radio at 10.30 on Friday night. Uh, after that trip, I was crazier about them than ever. Now, this is where it really gets nutty. The following year, my three girlfriends and I decided we had to go see their concert in, in Houston. I think that, that's, that's really a blurry picture. I got bad pixels on that, but that's actually from the, the concert in Houston. Sherry's mom said she would drive us, but our parents said we had to pay for the trip. We started skipping lunches most days to save our money. We babysat, mowed yards, anything to earn money. We made reservations at the 10 best hotels in Houston. 15 years old, okay? 10 best hotels in Houston. As the time drew near, my aunt and uncle who lived in Houston told me the Beatles would be staying at the Sheridan Lincoln Hotel. We kept our reservations there and canceled the rest. (laughs) I haven't even gotten started yet, okay? (laughs) I also wrote a letter to my national church youth magazine, United Church of Christ, and got a press pass so I could go to the Beatles press conference in return for writing an article for a magazine about our experience. We purchased our tickets uh, to both the concerts and set off for Houston with a sign that said Beatles are bust on the car. Walked into the Sheridan Hotel through a crowd of screaming kids and checked in. Sherry's mom took us to the airport, the Beatles were flying in from New Orleans, and let us loose. Unbelievably Unbelievably to me now, we spent the evening walking around the the inside and outside of the terminal trying to figure out 
where their plane would land. Finally, about midnight, someone gave us a tip about where the plane would be. We were right at the front of the crowd of kids, which grew to be over a 1,000 held back from the tarmac by a rope. When the Beatles' plane taxied up, we lifted up the rope, and everybody surrounded the plane. The Beatles loved it. They leaned out the cockpit window and waved. I thought I would die from excitement. (laughs) I bought a little pink bar of soap back at the hotel from a maid who said that it had come from the Beatles' room. We couldn't believe we were so close to them. The next day at the press conference, (laughs) I was sitting only four feet away from Ringo. As they left the press conference, I darted up to the table, stole Ringo's ashtray full of his cigarette ashes. (laughs) I still have that ashtray today covered with saran wrap. Then we attended both concerts and screamed our heads off. There's a little bit of enthusiasm for you. I told her what she should do. You know, Ringo's getting a little bit older, so, you know, how the next 20 years, whenever he passes away, she can honestly say she has Ringo's ashes. (laughs) That would be a true statement. Put it on eBay and retire. (laughs) Those of us that are old, uh, older, remember those days. Our theme all week has been worthy is the lamb. What exactly does that mean? I mean, it's great song lyrics. We've sung some of those songs this morning, and and they're very inspirational. But is there really any practical implication to my life or to your life? It's high and lofty, sounds wonderful, but fundamentally, is it irrelevant, or is there something more to it? What does worthy as the lamb mean when I lose my job and the economy is in the tank? How do I apply the phrase worthy as the lamb when we're in the middle of a family crisis or my aging parents are just seem to be more than I can possibly handle and I'm racked with guilt and frustration? What does worthy as the lamb matter when I can't speak a kind word to my spouse or I get a really bad report from my doctor? It's a nice Easter thought, but is it insignificant? Or is it the foundation upon which I build my life? You see, the question that we have to ask this morning is not just a kind of a a high and lofty theological question about that phrase, but really the question we have to ask is a very innately practical and personal one. How worthy is the lamb to me? You have to answer the same question for yourself. How worthy is the lamb to you? What we've been declaring all week and what we believe is that Jesus is of the greatest worth And he matters more significantly than we can ever say. He is of great worth because he is our representative and he is our redeemer. And that impact is a daily practical impact in our lives. And so we're going to consider the question this morning, how worthy is the Lamb of God? Uh, And considering John's words out of Revelation chapter 5. So if you have a Bible... Follow along your Bible, or you can uh, uh, read along on the screen. We're going to read the entire chapter, which is only 14 verses. Don't panic. We'll, we'll get you to brunch on time. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated, in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbered myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, it is Easter Sunday morning. It is a day of bright colors, blooming flowers. It is a day where we celebrate new life. Father, in our culture, it is a day where we gather as families, where we participate in Easter egg hunts and Easter baskets for the little ones, where we reflect on the coming of the new spring and new life. Father, it is a much more profound day than that. All of those poor reflections, all of those images reflect a much deeper and holier event that occurred that purchased our new life. Father, we celebrate this morning uh, not just the coming of spring, but we celebrate the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross on our behalf was vindicated by you. Your stamp of approval was placed on him when you raised him back to life. This is the most significant day in the history of the world, bar none. And it is a day where we turn our attention again to the praise and the worship of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, Father, as we look at a vision of the risen Christ, of the one who is is receiving praise and worship. As we, as we enter into the throne room of heaven, we pray that you would open our eyes to what you want us to know this morning. Father, I pray that you would forgive me my sin. I pray that you would not allow me to be a barrier for anyone hearing the truth of your word. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. We hear all week long the clamor and the philosophy and the opinions of man. We now come to sit at the feet of Jesus. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that, that you would move me away and that you would speak your truth into our lives this morning, that we would comprehend 
and understand your worth, not just in an intellectual way, but that we would actually apply that truth to our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, as we go through this passage this morning, we're just going to kind of skip through it at a pretty uh, decent pace. That You know, when a pastor says we're going to do something at a pretty decent pace, and he's talking about a sermon, that really doesn't mean anything. He's just trying to, to be nice to you. But, uh, but we do want to look at this question of worthy is the lamb, because in chapter 5 of Revelation, some pretty amazing things transpire that really have a lot to do with you and me sitting or standing here this morning. So I'm going to give you five observations about this text The first one is the setup. What exactly are are we discussing here in chapter 5 of Revelation? And the bottom line is we're looking at the destiny of mankind. If you look at verse 1, the Apostle John writes this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. What John is speaking about there is as, as he looks into the throne room of heaven, he sees God, he sees the Lord Almighty, he's seated on the throne, he's the center of attention, but he has something in his right hand. He has a scroll. Now, now we think old, you know, kind of rolled up and, and some kind of parchment, and, and that's certainly the, the metaphor that was there, but, but it was a deed of some kind. It was a legal document. We know that by the description he gives when he says that, it, that it's written, there's writing within, there's some words on the outside of the scroll, and it's sealed uh, with seven seals. John is describing an inheritance document. John is using language that speaks of a will or a testament. And so God in heaven, the Holy One, the Almighty One, holds this unique scroll, which is a proclamation of the destiny of mankind. In other words, your destiny and my destiny hangs in the balance of what is written in this scroll. Now, a will or a testament in in the day and age in which John was writing uh, was always sealed why seven witnesses. So a father would, would write out his will and testament, uh, a family would write out the will and testament, and then they would roll it up, and they would identify what it was on the outside. That's the writing on the outside. And then seven witnesses would come and would take their seal and would seal it so that it was closed securely, and it could not be opened until the day that the inheritance was to be enforced. Much like our legal proceedings today, when, when you have an attorney who is going to execute the will and they call everyone into the office and they, and they open the will and they read the final will and testament, that is the picture that we have in Revelation chapter 5. God holds your destiny in his hands. And it's now the time for it to be opened in the presence of at least seven witnesses. And seven in, in scripture is simply a number that means completion. It means perfection. So the perfect time has come for us to discover our destiny. This is a a monumental moment of greatest magnitude. And all of heaven is riveted on this scene. And here's here's how it unfolds. Look at verses 2 and 3. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll and to look into it. We come to this moment of of, of focus of all of history. We're we're about to find out what God's opinion is of us, how he's going to to deal with us, and there's this enormous letdown. This angel is, is calling out it's time for the heir to come forward and to open the inheritance and describe what is written therein, but no one can be found who is what? Look at what? The angel says, is there no one worthy 
to open the scroll. You see, the worth of Jesus is of huge significance. And until he steps forward, there was none that was worthy to represent mankind. There was no one worthy who could speak on your behalf or speak on my behalf. Do you really want to stand before God when your time comes and explain your life to him? Do you really want to stand before this one who is seated on the throne of heaven in all glory and all perfection and explain the deeds of your life? I want no part of that, friends. And if you do, you're either a much better person than me or, with all due respect, you're an absolute fool. To come before the God of the universe and to try and explain that we have any worth within us that would deem his love and his mercy and his grace is a foolhardy endeavor. And so what does John do in verse 4? No one is found worthy, and he says, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Uh, my kids tease me from time to time because I can get a little misty-eyed in sermons. I, I'm, I'm kind of an emotional person, and I can, I can cry a little bit. This verse doesn't say that John kind of had to, you know, say, excuse me a minute, kind of, you know, brush the tear from his eyes. It says that John had a breakdown. Have you ever been around somebody who literally is so absorbed with grief they can't even stand on their own two feet? I remember the day in our office when we got the news that Beth Workheiser's brother had been killed in Iraq. Beth was walking in the office when she found out that news. And there was a blood-curdling scream. And then she fell to the ground and she wept. That's the emotion that's in this verse, friends. Don't skip by and go. He, he was a little upset. John was broken. He was undone because his destiny and your destiny and my destiny was hanging in the balance, but there was nobody that could be found in mankind who could step forward and to speak on our behalf. And we will be held accountable to God. Who's, who's going to help you? Who's going to help me as we have to give that answer? I told you all a few weeks ago, probably about a month or so ago, my wife, uh, Cindy, got a ticket when she was coming down a hill in Kirkwood back when it was snowing and not raining. I'm not, I guess sun comes after this. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, she slid through a stop sign and got a ticket, and so I was teasing her a little bit. But a friend took the ticket, and uh, he said, I'll, you know, let me see what I can do. And I bummed into him about two weeks ago. I said, whatever happened to that ticket? Because normally, you know, you got to get it knocked down to a non-moving violation. You pay the fine, and, but you don't get any points on your license, right? All of you that are not, not, Some of you are looking at me like you've never gotten a ticket before, which <laughs> concerns me greatly. But uh, so I bumped into this guy. I said, what happened to Cindy's ticket? He goes, oh, it's all taken care of. I said, well, uh, did you write the check? I, do I owe you some money? I got to pay for that. He goes, oh, no, I, I got it all waived. As you got a waved, he goes, yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't know a thing. I spoke on her behalf. Not bad. I haven't ever had a lawyer be that good for me. I always have to write the check. <laughs> right? Who's going to speak on your behalf? Person seated to your right? Person seated to your left? Person in front of you? Person behind you? Don't ask me. I'm going to be cowering in the corner. Man's destiny hangs in the balance. And John weeps because he knows we're in big trouble. But the passage doesn't stop there. Secondly, a champion is identified. Look at verses 5 and 6. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns 
And seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Now, I'm going to take a break here for a second. We're going to do a little pop culture quiz. And again, if you're real young, you don't, you don't feel bad if you don't get it. Uh, but everybody participate with me. I'm going to start the phrase, okay? And when you know where it's going, it's a real short phrase. I'm going to start the phrase. And when, when you know where it is, just jump right in and, and say it out loud with me, okay? You with me? So this is a verbal thing. I, want, I got to hear it, okay? Here's the phrase. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's... Superman. There you go. Now, for everybody under 30, they're going, wow, we thought our parents were messed up, and now we, we know they are. Everybody in my generation knows that phrase. It's a bird. It's, a bl- it's Superman. There's somebody that's come to the rescue. There's somebody that, the, the, the man of steel, he's strong enough. He's able. He's confident. He can, he can handle the bad guys, so to speak. And the elder says to John, look, It's not a bird, it's not a plane, it's not Superman. This is no ordinary rock star, so to speak. This is the long-awaited Messiah. He gives them two particular titles before he he returns to the the lamb theme. He says, this is the Lion of Judah. And he's referring back to a passage in Genesis chapter 49 where where, uh, the the word is given about the sons uh, of um, uh, Isaac. Uh, excuse me, sons of Jacob, and, and Judah is the one who is called the lion's cub. He's called the one who is going to have the scepter. He's called the one who is going to, to be the, the royal lineage of the nation of Israel. And not only that, but the elder says not, he is the lion of Judah, but he's also the root of David, and he's going back there to Isaiah chapter 11, in which Isaiah in, in this entire chapter spells out how the throne of David is going to be restored forever and ever. And things that are wrong are going to be put to right. And there will be no end to his reign, to his justice, and to his mercy. And so when the elder says to John, look, there, there is the, the, uh, the, the line of Judah. There is the root of David. John knows exactly what he's talking about. And he says, that's the one. There he is. That is the Messiah who has come. But notice how he's also described. He's a lamb who is standing as though it had been slain. In other words, this lamb is, is upright when he shouldn't be, so to speak. Uh, you know, it's like when you, when you watch a boxing match and, and somebody says, you know, boy, he's, he's taking a bunch of punches this round. I don't know how he's possibly still on his feet. Uh, that's the idea. John looks at the lamb and, and he sees the lamb and he says, how is it possible that, that he's still standing when he was the one who was slain? John is looking at the scarred but triumphant Jesus. He's looking at the one who still has the, 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 the nail piercings in his hands and in his feet. But he's seeing the champion. He's seeing the one who has overcome death. And so he is also seeing the one who is described as a lamb, who has been the sacrifice for our sins. But he's now the one who has seven horns. A horn in Scripture simply represents power, might, authority. And seven, as I mentioned a while ago, means perfection, means completion. This is the almighty one. There is nothing outside of his strength. There's nothing outside of his power. But he's also the one who has seven eyes. He's the one who is all-knowing. He sees everything. This is one impressive champion. I was at uh, uh, Lambert Field several years ago, a long time ago, um, actually, and uh, Cindy and I were going someplace. I'm not sure, I think we might have been going to Florida, and we were on one of those really early, early morning flights. Like, it took off at 6, so you had to be there at you know, whatever, you know, quarter to five or something. 
And in those days, the NBA, and maybe they still do, I kind of lost interest in the NBA, but the NBA was doing some preseason games in St. Louis. And the Lakers had played in St. Louis the night before when Magic Johnson was still playing. And we and we walking down the, the hallway, you know, we're going, we're, we're in our concourse, and we're going, and, and I look, and there's somebody seated, I can't really see who it is, but all the ticket agents, all the security guards, again, this is kind of when you could walk in and out of the airport, everybody was around this guy holding court, and it was Magic Johnson. And I just elbowed, you know, I'm kind of like the screaming girls with the Beatles, you know, I elbowed my way right to the front, I wanted to see Magic. I wanted to see the guy who I had watched in, in college and in my, my young adult years, you know, do incredible things on the basketball court. And John says, here's, here's the superhero. Here's, here's the one you want to elbow your way to get to the front to see. This is the champion, the one who has come to redeem. Thirdly, not only is the destiny of mankind hanging in the balance, not only do we see that the champions now identified, but now we see that this one has great worth in the eyes of God. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says this, um, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a bowl filled with incense, the prayers of the saints. And then they begin to sing this song of worship. It's absolutely vital for us to understand that God sees Jesus as worthy. Because I asked you before, who's going who's gonna to stand up for you at the right moment? When you have to give an account to God for all the sin in your life, for all the things you have done that have dishonored him and have harmed others, who's going to stand up? Again, your, your, your best buddy, your spouse, you know, one of your kids, it won't do. Somebody needs to stand for us whom God will accept. And there are two things here that, that speak to that very clearly. The first is that he took the scroll from the hand of the one who was seated on the throne. The, the king releases the document into the hand of the only perfect man who has ever lived completely blameless and without moral flaw or imperfection. Only he could dare approach this holy God and claim your deed and claim mine. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, we won't put it on the screen this morning, but the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God seated in heaven. And he describes the vision and he describes God. And then he looks inward and he says, woe is me. I'm completely undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah looks at God and he looks at himself and if we put it into our modern vernacular, he's saying, I wish I was dead. If there was a a mountain here, I wish it would fall on top of me and cover me from the presence of this holy God. Who dares to go into his presence and to take an official document from his hand? The perfect one. And God releases your destiny. And he releases my destiny into the hands of the Lamb. The second reason we know that, that he is of great worth in the eyes of God is because what happens next? All who witness this in heaven, these, these creatures and these 24 elders and, and all of these, these angelic beings, what happens? They all begin to worship. They all begin to worship not the one who's seated on the throne. They begin to worship the Lamb who now is holding the scroll. Now, you don't have to be a phenomenal Old Testament expert uh, in, in uh, uh, ancient um, Old Testament text to know that only God receives worship, right? Go back to the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. What's the second commandment? 
You don't make any idols. You don't make, you don't make up gods in your own mind and then go and worship him. God is jealous in the perfect sense of the word. God is the only one who is worthy to be the object of our worship. And when he tells us to not have any other gods before him, when he tells us not to place our, our standing in our community above him or to, to our pursuit of wealth above him or our, our reputation above him, it's not because he, he's trying to be uh, egocentric. It's because he's trying to get us to the one place where we will do that for which we are created, which is to worship him because he alone is worthy. And I promise you, there's nobody in heaven that's worshiped besides God. And when Jesus takes the scroll, what happens? Jesus becomes the center of worship. And God doesn't lift a finger to stop it. Because it is that moment that he is ordained. This one who we say worthy is the lamb is of great worth in the eyes of God. So now we must turn our attention to ourselves. Is he of great worth in our eyes is my fourth observation in this text. Look at the, the uh, verses 7 and 8. He went and took the stroll from the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken it, what happens? The four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and they worship him. And then they sing a new song, verses 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Through his death, he has ransomed lost humanity. We were under God's condemnation for our sins, and rightly so. We deserve his punishment. And yet Jesus traded places with us. That's what the cross is all about, friends. It's not just a, a symbol of some kind of religion where you try to do good things and you try to be a nice person, a little bit better than your next door neighbor. Rather, the cross is the place where Jesus took the punishment that we deserve without bias. Notice who he's ransoming, a people from every nation, every tribe, every language. Jesus doesn't say, you know, if, if, if you're born in the United States, you're in, but if you're, you're born in Thailand, you're out. <laughs> She says, every nation, there is no bias in the grace and the mercy of God. We are his inheritance. We are his possession. And then it goes on to say, you have made them a kingdom and priests of our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What does that mean? Jesus has given us a new identity. We've become part of his kingdom. He says that we are now the priests of God. In other words, we have a role to play. Not only do we have a new identity, but we have meaning in our lives. I said this was intensely practical and personal. When you come to Christ for salvation, when he is the one that stands before God on your account and you put your faith in him, he then turns around and says, now, child, I've got an assignment for you. Go and share that with the world around you. Be my witness to the worth of the lamb in order that others may hear the good news of the gospel. The priest had the job of representing God to the people and the people to God. And Jesus now expands that and says, we are all a kingdom of priests and they will reign with him forever. Now who reigns? The only people that reign are the people of the monarchy, right? The only one that reigns are the one who are the prince and the princesses, right? So if, you're, if your faith is in Christ this morning, you have royal blood flowing through your veins. You're a prince. You are a princess in the eyes of God. See, so many people who struggle with their identity in Christ, and I say, what do you think God would say to you if he went, walked in here and sat down and talked with you? And 99.9 .9 times out of 100, it's negative. He'd say he's disappointed. He would say he's frustrated. He would say, you know, I saved you, and this is all you have to show for it. 
Now, I'm not saying we ought not grow in our faith, but friends, when God looks at you as if, ladies, he sees a princess. He sees a beautiful person for whom his son died. Many sees a prince. He sees one whom he's going to give authority to help reign and rule. We become part of a royal family. He should be of great worth in our eyes. This is intensely practical when we begin to think about our relationship with God and who we are and how we look at ourselves. Uh, If you were with us on Friday night, bear with me because I'm going to be a bit redundant. But if you weren't there Friday night, we were in this theme of worthy as the lamb. And I asked four different people a few weeks ago if they would write down what that meant to them. I said, what does it mean for you, the phrase worthy as the lamb? Didn't give them any other instruction than that except keep it to one page. I asked four different people. I asked three adults, one guy and two gals, and then I asked uh, a seven-year-old if she would write down her thoughts. And so if you were there Friday night, this is going to be a bit repetitive, but if you weren't, here's what she wrote. In Revelation, the lamb that was slain is Jesus. The slain makes me think of the holes in his feet and his hands. He did not have to do it, but he wanted to do it because he loves us. And now our sins are broken up and thrown away into the trash. He made the crippled man by the pool walk, and did all kinds of other miracles. Jesus actually does help us now too. When I am having nightmares and they are really freaky, and then I pray, God, please help me not to dream about this. A little bit later, I guess after he thinks about it and decides, then he helps me and I can be happy. Sometimes when there's trouble, I just forget about him. And then other times I say, Jesus, can you please help me? There's one part of me that is like, I want Jesus, I want Jesus. And then there's another part of me that is like, eh, I'm like half bad and half good. If I saw Jesus, I would be scared because I might think he was going to do something bad to me since I've been sinning. She understands her worth apart from Christ at the age of seven. I would just be scared because it's Jesus and you don't get to see him every day. (laughs) I would say, would you please forgive me? And I'm happy that you love me. And I want to believe in you and be friends. Jesus is worthy because he died for us to save us so that, uh, so that this world would not be broken so much. Whoever believes in him will not die and go away, will, what will, but will come to heaven and be with him. Is Jesus of that kind of worth in your eyes and in my eyes? He's obviously the one who has captured our destiny. He's obviously of great worth in the eyes of God the Father. Is he of that kind of worth in our eyes? Because the worship goes on, my fifth observation and final observation this morning is that we see in these last verses an unending and unapologetic worth that is assigned to Jesus. In verses 11 and 12, and I'm not going to put all of the, the verses, but just the words that he is worthy, all of heaven declares, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. That's, that's heaven's chorus. That's heaven's choir speaking and singing of the glory of Jesus. But then John tells us that the earth, and what's under the earth, and the seas, and all of creation joins in and sings the refrain, blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever, and ever. Amen. Is the risen Jesus worthy? Is the risen Jesus worthy? The enthroned almighty God says yes. All heavenly creatures say yes. Is the risen Jesus worthy? And you and I say what? 
To those who are his disciples, the answer is an unequivocal yes. Through the death and the resurrection, the risen lamb has paid for our sins. He gives us a new identity and he gives us a new home. And that begins now, but it continues on to eternity. Our words this morning in in worship and song and in praise have certainly spoken to the worth of the lambs. What about our lives? Will you pray with me?